the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. I am your host, as always, Cooper Cherry. We are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before I get going with today's guest, I do want to throw out that I have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. And if you're enjoying the show, please do consider throwing me a buck a month to uh, help uh, offset the cost of the production. Um, But anyhow, today's guest is a frequent contributor to the happy hour, Taylor Atkins. Taylor and I will be diving into a, kind of a broad discussion of Sigmund Freud's Beyond the Pleasure Principle, and um, we'll be picking up with a part two to this as well, but we're going to be dropping, you know, some Leotard, some Deleuze and Guattari, Baudrillard, etc. So I think you will definitely enjoy this discussion of BPP. Well, what is it that Freud says about, he says something about universals in Beyond the Pleasure Principle that we just read. But my copy is so marked up that it's going to be hard to find. Another thing about this episode is they find basically this giant space tardigrade. A giant one. Yes, which I had been thinking about already because of the mention of the the discussion in BPP about single cell, I forget, the paramecia type that he's discussing and how... Either death is so insignificant of a change for those organisms that it doesn't really exist in the same capacity as death for like a multi, like an an complex animal. Right. Yeah, that that makes sense. And so that there's either that or there's almost a certain type of immortality to life at that level of, uh, you know, it's so primitive in quote. What he says about... I don't know if you uh, have are familiar with or had like read a Wikipedia page on the German biologist that he's no, getting not. some of this from. He actually he actually like cites him and says his name, uh, Weissman. This guy was a 19th century biologist, and basically he's known for it's called germ plasm theory and yeah. the, germ he, in the sense of uh, right in the sense of. Rep- yeah, yes. rather than germ as in bacteria, right, yeah, yeah. So, so he's he's famous for basically the whole idea is more or less that you have what's called soma body, right? The the, the other cells, somatic, that, yeah, somatic yeah, that, cells versus right, uh, and then you have the germ cells, which for him are the only ones that, so to speak, are immortal, right? Because they they pass on the uh, yes, yes, important yes. genetic information and and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, Simon Don actually works through this in the individuation book and his, you know, basic thing is that this is a, that if we get down and, and of course with hundred years of advances in science, but like, as we get down to it, this is untenable, this binary, this like this cheap chief break between the two. And we can see that in 
yeah, all kinds of different types of reproduction. Like, and I think you can see that sort of would be, I think, DNG approach would be to like try to not create that division between mm-hmm. the cell types, right? They would like say, well, you can't have one without, you know what I mean? Some more holistic. Is it, do you think maybe the metaphor for like the body without organs almost applies in this kind of similar fashion? You know, obviously it's within one system, so it's not necessarily, but you know what I mean? In terms of that orchid, wasp distinction, spider web, you know what I mean? But you like know, within I, the yeah. relationship between the somatic and the germ, you know what I mean? I do think it's important to think about the body without organs in terms of, not just in terms of the of that binary, but in terms of you know Freud thinking through the death drive with the with the life drives, and of course you know Leotard and libidinal economy is wanting us to think through these things you know more generally outside of just biology and 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 not to necessarily oppose them. And I don't think Freud necessarily. It's hard to say that he. It seems like he vacillates because he does want to say that there's like this rhythm to them. He does. He even says that more or less later on in the essay. Even if we may think that he's he's wanting to like oppose them to a certain extent, they are like working in tandem. It's kind of like a a stressed and unstressed beat or something like that, right? And of course, all of this is speculation, which allows Freud to be a little bit more a little bit more, let's say, daring and and like going out uh, of his way. And so he can. He can kind of have it both ways if he wants to, right? That on the one hand, the death and life drives are opposed. On the other hand, obviously, they are working in tandem and allowing for this kind of rhythm of life to have a kind of pro-tension, retention, or like a progress, regress thing. And, and he even has that Darwinian moment when he says that we see in the development of organisms that involution or supposed regression for a perfect observer happens all the time and so and so he puts that hypothesis that it's probably pressures from the external milieu right he has a very darwinian moment there but with the body without organs you know with with lewis and guattari and why they would even say that you know they're using the term because of our toe and they get it from our toe before i forget me just throw this out there about eukaryote prokaryote uh Mm. no mitochondria so that's an example of like literally integration within of the outs, uh, like of another organism and the sense of that body without organs. I just think uh, that's a kind of interesting. Yeah. Mitochondria are are fascinating, right? They're the, they're the kind of like the engines, right? They're the the powerhouse of the cell. The powerhouses of the cell. There's a great game called Parasite Eve came out in the nineties. And the whole theory is that, and I'm kind of butchering it, but it's more or less life began with, because mitochondria are like almost like these alien beings and they kind of need shells to like house themselves. And so yep. like mitochondria kind of used, took on to the earliest like uh, life forms and like boosted them because they, they needed to propagate themselves. It's more or less like that. And, and so, you know, with those and Guattari, you know, they take the body with the organs, that notion from our toe and they run with it. But for the most part, you know, they, they would even say that it's a, for their conceptualization, it's it's an unfortunate way of putting it because, of course, they're saying it's, you know, it's not opposed to the organs, it's opposed to the organization. Yeah. And this is where it's, they will. It, it's almost like a deconstruction of the body, right? Of the, well, I don't it's know. A, it's a, it's a, it's a. But do you know, do you see what I'm saying? Like sort of breaking down this logocentrist approach to the body and division of it into categories yeah, that's one just way to place, put it, I think, yeah. Just placing it from its context, and right, context is for kings. <laughs> well, I mean, they're, 
<laughs> they, uh, I think that that what the losing growth you're trying to point to is a is a point of view that looks at evolution, life forms, etc. From like almost that Spinozist. Well, yeah, view, that's, right? that's that's yeah. What? Well, yeah, right. The we don't know. Monist what sort do. of. It's it's a it's it's a way of looking at development and asking the question: Why is it that forms vary so little? Right, given the fact that infinite variation is constantly not just a possibility, but it's always sort of bombarding the the quote unquote identity of the species. Why is it that species sort of t- seem like they? Why, why do they not vary more? And so I think that like, this is why Deleuze and Guattari will, will in a thousand plateaus will go through working out this question of infinite, you know, infinite variation and et cetera. There's, if we look at, I think that plateau three gets into this a lot with challenger and this, you know, this question of different ways of looking at organization, let's just say. Right. And here's this scene just so, uh, I just thought this was fucking brilliant and right in line with my kind of whole vibe universal laws for lackeys context is for kings i mean i guess that's a crude sort of reading of dng in the sense of hegelian universalism versus a sort of more imminently a more imminent or difference based ontological position maybe yeah i mean it's it's interesting right i mean there's it's, it's hard to say just from that that one thing i wouldn't want to make it a polemic against against hegel there always be a way for hegel and his his lackeys, the Hegelians, to uh, turn around on us. But I, I do think it is it is a good quote. It's, it's highly memeable, sir. You should screenshot that and share it with the masses. What you think about tardigrades is, is interesting. Um, when Freud is talking about basically running with the germ theory and talking about the germ cells and saying that they work against the death of the living substance and succeed in winning for it what, can only, what we can only regard as potential immortality, I was thinking about uh, Simonon's discussion of colonies, right? He'll talk about, he looks at marine colonies, like different sponges and, and those types of life forms, right? The, what we could say is, quote unquote, from a certain perspective, the lowest, some of the lowest forms of anim, animal life. Yeah. And, and his point being that the way he looks at the way that they reproduce and individuate. And it's very interesting because these sponges or these polyps will bud they'll like bud out and then these buds will like remain attached to the colony but they'll kind of start to diverge but more or less what's interesting is any one of those little polyps can die but has the individual strictly speaking the colony died and so like he it's very fascinating because he'll say that by his way of looking at individuation in terms of dealing with systems of information and stuff like this he'll want to say that there is this point of view where it's hard to distinguish whether the polyp or the colony is the individual right that that yeah. that more definitionally it's it's more so the colony yet each polyp each little bud given enough distance given enough movement away from the original colony has the ability to to bud not just into its own little self-sufficient polyp but into a colony itself right so there's this interesting i think that like freud updated speculatively with, you know, a hundred years of, well, hundred years, no, that'd only be 30 years of science and updated with a Simondonian perspective. I think that the, especially the stuff about Weizmann and the germ stuff, I think that that, that can easily be, it still has a lot of value. And I think that's why Deleuze and Guattari and Leotard both turned to beyond the pleasure principle. I think, it, I think it's, oh, gosh, what Leotard says, it's like his most 
like impassioned work, which I find interesting. And I assume that he knows that from reading the, the German. He himself did little bootleg translations of some Freud that, that wasn't available at the time. Like uh, at the end of Discourse Figure, he has a translation of um, Freud's Verneinung, the essay on negation. It's very short, yeah. but it's, it's a beautiful text. But he says uh, that, that it's his most impassioned work. I, I find it to be his most creative, even though a lot of times he is always constantly saying he's hypothesizing here. He's, he does too here say the re- when he gets to that point, he's like, all right, this is all speculation. Yeah. All right. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to fuck around. And I like that he gives himself that room. And, and in fact, you know, when he talks about the instincts or well, when he talks about drives, he'll say that the source of the drive is biological. It's represented by the drive in the, in the psychic apparatus. But his main point is we can't talk about this as, psychoanalysis. This is beyond our purview. This is the yeah. domain of biological science, of, of the sciences of life. And yet here we, we see that's where Freud, I think, allows himself to be the most free to speculate about what, you know, at the basis of life, at the fundamental, quote unquote, as he keeps calling it, conservative tendencies of life, what the what drives are doing. And he doesn't allow himself to fall back on what he calls in humans, the self-preservative drive. Well, really not just in humans, but in higher, even in plants, right? Higher uh, organized uh, living forms, living beings. He'll constantly talk about self-preservative drives, but here he doesn't allow himself to fall back on that precisely because, you know, when you're looking at either a small aggregate of cells or, or as you brought up, just a unicellular protozoa, it's hard to, it's begging the question to talk about even a, a self to preserve, so yeah. to speak. I thought it was interesting. Hmm. What was it? The Eros has the desire or it has a tendency towards complexity or. Yeah, that's what he says. And it, like it, it almost builds this, up compounds. Yes, yes. And, and this sort of economies of scale <clears throat> might be a good metaphor for understanding like the how that or how that functions. I always felt. And this is kind of. Freud has this ambivalence towards Plato. He'll seemingly contradict himself about Plato in, 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 in certain texts. That's not important here. What I, what, I, what I think is interesting that where he gets that definition of Eros as building higher forms, right, of linking forms together and compounding, this has a lot to do with, it reminds me of the symposium. I think it's Pausanias who talks about how it, under the harshest tyrants, groups of three or more men are felt as a threat. You know, the tyrant wants, of course you have, I say men, I mean humans, right? Of right. course, yeah, two, yeah. two humans together, you know, that's the family unit. And I guess you can have some children, you know, on the side, but they don't really count. But groups of three or more men, basically what he's saying is, is that the tyrant is afraid of love. Is the, is, he's afraid of the bonds of love to create groups that could potentially bond together in a way that would threaten the state. And obviously under tyranny for, for Plato, it's the most precarious form of government. It's paranoid out of its mind yeah. about any uh, threat that, that would come to it specifically internally. And this is why I think Socrates tries to, with the Republic, he wants to have a kind of, he wants to take the best of both worlds from self-government, autarky, and democracy, and, uh, and a kind of tyranny, even though it's a, it's a tyranny that, that has to garb itself in the 
appearance of fate, right? With the, with the lottery, right? Where you get your lottery ticket and have to marry um, and you think it's fate. You think it's random chance, but the elders are like, you know, they're, they're behind the scenes planning it eugenics wise, making sure that the best stock mates with the, the best stock and all that. But yeah, so I think that when Freud talks about Eros here as, as building up forms complexively, that's not even a word, but let's just run with it in a complex way, right? He's, I think he is thinking, or at least he's unconsciously alluding to, um, to the symposium and this question about how Eros, especially in, again, I think it's Pausanias, how it builds groups together. But you see something similar in the Aristophanes myth too, with the gods are afraid of the original hermaphrodite humans, right? Because they're, they're too powerful and it has to like divide up the sexes to make them spend all their energy finding their other half rather than bringing down the gods. Oh, yeah. Um, but I mean, so, so many of the myths are about gods afraid of men, right? Prometheus gets gets punished for bringing fire to men because in Genesis, right? The the eat of, eating of the tree of knowledge of good and they evil. They will they will be like gods, right? I right. think it's it's more or less is one of the translations of, of the passage. Um, it's sort of interesting in this sort of co-evolutionary reading you can take of myths, and even I think applying this to Freud himself. As far as it had mentioned that I think as we gain more understanding of, I guess, biology, broadly speaking, but specifically, I guess, cognitive function, development, mm-hmm. etc., that Freud will sort of be vindicated in a lot of his, a lot of things that he proposed. Maybe not everything, right? But like, I think certain things are going to come to light that discoveries, which will dovetail with Freud's hypotheses in a lot of areas. It's very interesting. You said this to me last night and- I feel like since it's so popular to shit on Freud, I, yeah. you know, you, you know that the, it's hard to say, especially for the theorists that we're interested in that, that generation of French thinkers, I mean, so many of them are unabashedly give Freud credit, even if they push him and, and they prod him, they obviously find something to that, especially in that little, that heady mixture of, uh, of Marx and Freud that we find in Leotard, that we find in Deleuze and Guattari and, and others, yeah. you know, it's, it's so fascinating too, because Growing up, Deleuze's favorite philosopher seemingly was was Sartre, and Sartre purposefully, I think, either purposefully or just has to distort Freud and completely um, miss the point with him because it it runs completely counter to his way of thinking about pre-contemplative cogito and all that stuff, right? His matrix of thinking about consciousness in that phenomenological tradition and building Mm -hmm. it, using that, that as the building stone for his ideas about freedom and bad faith and these other things, it just completely doesn't accord with how Freud, especially like in this, in a text like this, where he would say something that Sartre would, wouldn't know what to do with this, this thing about how, and even though he'll continue to modify this later, his thing about how the ego, even most of it can't be said to be conscious. It's kind of free floating as a, it's interesting, right? Because topographically he'll want to think of the ego it's hard to say. Sometimes he'll say the ego is the is the sheath, the protective shield of the unconscious, and the other times he'll want to make that just consciousness. But here he seems to be saying like it's both kind of anchored into the depths, not only of the unconscious but also the preconscious. Right? It's able to like straddle those lines, but it's it's also this kind of surface. So it's a it's almost a go back to Leotard. It's, it's like almost a, a, a Mobian type right. of thing, or right? it's like a yeah. There's like a I want to say that. Right for Freud, it, there are different points within the, if you're laying out in the way that Leotard does, this physical two-dimensional topography of this, of the, unco- not the unconscious, really, I guess the entire cognitive 
space or what have you, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's the uncut the ego would have a would be a location, the super ego, the id, etc. And I wonder too, in that sense, how much of Freud is a sort of crude Fichtean dialectic or like the right is the ego of the self and the, non-self the, stuff. The ego is sort of a synthesis between super ego, the like control super ego is the controlling societal other function. The id is the internal sort of almost maybe I don't know if death drive would be the right way to say it, but I think maybe in that direction kind of makes sense right like if we had to equate them or 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 align them they would almost be like the two there's a stasis needed before so that the organism doesn't just totally blow up yeah i think that the id would would uh you know in in because it's interesting right this is too much is id good. will create you'll die right you'll overdose on drugs or what you know what i mean whatever happens and then too or you, much yeah. control and you'll be i don't know you'll probably get depressed and kill yourself or maybe you'll or, get catatonic Right. You'll be paralyzed. You won't. Yeah. I think that that's good to bring this up. Right. Because in this modulation of the drives by the different functions with the topographical theory, it seems like it would be associated with unbound energies, which, which is what we were talking about. And Freud is obviously he's, he's always trying to think through this question of, drives their their pressure their intensities and the energies associated with the libido and the question of bound and unbound energies in part two of the of beyond the pleasure principle he's bringing up the the war traumas right the traumatic neuroses and he's and he's thinking through these lethal or semi-lethal unbound energies that break the protective shield and and sort of wound the integrity of of the ego and so i think that that's part of if you have that tripartite topography, you know, obviously the superego is, you know, it has functions in dreams, right? With the sensor, it's trying to keep us asleep, but it's also trying to help to keep the ego organized and, and boost it up, right? And protect it from that dangerous, lethal, unbound yeah. energy. Just pure libido, explosive energy, the sort of, I think it's also interesting in that sense of just thinking from Lacan's point of view, his sort of equivalence to this tripartite model of id superego ego is corresponds to real imaginary symbolic right to some mm-hmm. or at least he it's a derivative of that superegoic injunction is to enjoy mm, right which is a sort of i think right for superego for freud is more the modulating force of the other or society at large or what have you like it's playing a moderating role and for lacan it's superego would be it would be almost the reverse. It would be more akin to the id in terms of pursue your enjoyment. It's hard to say, right? I mean, it's, it's yeah. interesting because with, I think with Lacan, the injunction to enjoy, I think is the important part because I think that for, you could, you could still align it with Freud if you want to, in that sense, because it's, it's precisely the superego telling us to organize our, I mean, right. It's, it's directing like or- desire organize our drives in such a way that we can temporarily not enjoy, right? So that later we can enjoy more. There is, it's uh, interesting, this economy yeah. that, and, and Leotard is really helpful here, but this interesting yeah. this economy, this play between the reality principle and the, and the pleasure principle, right? This, this thing about how he does make it out to be this question of reserve and saving and finding that that kairos that right moment and and obeying the reality principle so like later say like it's kind of like this this i mean lacan and joy 
you can you can totally see how that's that's the right way to frame it in capitalism and you can i think freud would say like there you go resonance yeah i think freud would be like enjoy. for the worker it's like enjoy means you know do all the shit that's expected of you and then like that's what the weekends are for right is your pleasure principle or something i think maybe even the death drive is present there like especially going back to leotar and that you know the famous quote about english working class or proletariat gaining an enjoyment although getting i guess on for their, him on their yeah, bodies just getting on destroyed. the destruction of the body yeah, yeah and i mean i don't know if that my instinct is to say there's an unconscious jouissance to that rather than like a conscious enjoyment i think that's what he meant too. but that would it's be not... like death drive would be like the repetition <laughs> of the symptoms so going to work right continually you know repeating this sort of destruction of your own body to return to a state of although for leotard it seems like it's the reverse it's the destruction of the body is t tied to becoming inhuman although i guess returning to a maybe that doesn't necessarily contradict that desire to return to a, a more primordial or basic state that freud posits as the death drive and if i'm talking out of my ass at any point just no i'm just <laughs> trying to think about like, about what we talked about with leotard right because I can never tell like how if my understanding is too surface level or if I'm like really grappling with the actual meat of what Freud and like Lacan are, are saying or even no, I, Leotard I, to some extent. So I think I think to a certain extent, you know, we have to obviously like lay out the surface and, and go deeper. And I think you're, you're yeah. trying to you're doing you're doing you're doing excellently. I, I'm trying to think about the the stuff we talked about with mercantilism versus capitalism or the or the different zeros and stuff. And I'll just. I'll just say it does seem interesting that like the death drive would be inherent in like Louis the 14th and France being like, Oh, we don't need to import any shit. We, we can make all our food and all of our goods. And so we're just going to hoard all the, the money. Yeah. Well, there's a death drive to that because potentially there is a finite amount of silver to be hoarded. There's a finite amount of gold in the, in the, in all the realms. And you, you end up killing your, the partners, right? You end up killing the other states or, or at least weakening them to a point where they potentially wouldn't be able to, to purchase any of your goods. And so what do you do? You, <laughs> you, you, you sacrifice, you yeah. potlatch, right? You. It's um, funny in the context of Marx too, right? Go on. Because Marx is talking, always focusing on the contradictions within capital leading to its mm -hmm. demise. So that same contradiction within mercantilism that you right. just kind of went over, like that's <laughs> that's the through line. I think you're exactly right. And um, but it is interesting that that this hoarding, but also this lavish expenditure, right? In the yeah. in in the court, this sort of with the feasts and the and the, the creation of prestige, right? It's a necessary consequence because without that without that type of lavish consumption. I guess it's that that that, that, it, that is that is the contradiction in mercantilism, right? It's it's this this hoarding would lead to and this non necessity of of buying imports. You become self sufficient, but by becoming self sufficient, the game starts to yeah, it ossifies. Right, exactly. You need that destruction, right? Creative um, destruction of capital to generate new. Well, to generate new tendencies of hoarding, right? right? To, to to restart the yeah. the hoarding. It's kind of like that. I think I think that's kind of what Freud's trying to do with with the death and life drives when he's yeah. looking at the organisms, <clears throat> because he he keeps saying that there's nothing definitive in looking at biology speculatively in this way mm -hmm. that could lead us to think 
that progress, that evolution into these higher, quote unquote, more perfect forms is anything but a kind of idealism, right? Is anything but a kind of desire on our parts to see some sort of guiding creationist hand in saying that there will be higher forms. So he's, he's trying to say, like, if we, if we think about the life and death drives or just the drives on this level in a conservative fashion, to see the death drive as a, as a conservative tendency uh, rather than an annihilating tendency. I think that that's, I think that huh. that's what Leotard is getting at, too, with this when he keeps using the term annulment. Right? That's interesting. Uh, what do you think, though, about because I think this eros, the tendency of eros that he posits to for complexity is to there's not a redundancy, but a I don't know, almost like in the sense of deterritorialization is more distributed systems are more robust, although maybe not as efficient. Do you know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah. This this question about you're right. This question about efficiency in these higher forms is again. Freud says it's not just involution, but ad, but 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 progressive complexification. It, it's that, almost that like he, the roulette wheel. Okay, so I'm placing. I'm going to place several bets on different. Let's say I'm the evolutionary force or Gagnon or whatever, right? Or Moloch. I'm going to place different bets on the roulette wheel, mm-hmm. like. I'm going to distribute this rather than putting it, you know, rather than like I'm putting it all on black, mm-hmm. sort of very centralized. Um, I'm, I'm betting all my chips on this particular thing, whereas a more distributed organizational structure or distributed system is going to have like the Internet. Right. That's the whole logic behind the Internet. Right. Was to avoid a one node in a network taking down the entire yes. system. Okay. Right. Yeah. And. I mean, Takun talks about this at the origins of the internet as, I mean, because we know that it started off with a, it was a military project, right? And and it was meant to be decentralized and it was meant that under devastating occurrences, nuclear war, whatever, the majority of the nodes, even 90% of them or more could be taken down, but you could still have communication channels right. working. And I think yeah. that you're exactly right. This, this question of this, of networks that are decentralized and, and yet at the same time, Takum points out that with the advent of hacking and other forms of jamming, given enough knowledge about the state of the system, we could, we could jam a few nodes that are um, coming out of the transatlantic cable and you know, bomb and hack a, a few specific channels, and we could really threaten the whole system. That ideal isn't necessarily even today, although now we have shit like clouds and stuff. So that, that ideal of the network is even more etherealized, right? And potentially capable of more decentralization. Yeah. Before I forget though, let me oppose this point or uh, just idea is I almost see a, an interesting metaphor here between it's funny that capitalism developed the internet. Firstly, in this, going back to the way that internet was in the nineties, right? It was more open and decentralized, et cetera, right? It wasn't controlled by these maps, a Google, you know what I mean? Didn't have I got you. Yeah, I got you. So it's interesting that there is this dialectic between the it, decentralized ca- origins and the, and then these big companies. Right. And then like, becoming, and, yeah. it also, so the metaphor between death drive and Eros, Eros as complexity and death drive on the other side of the spectrum, because it's funny that capitalism develops the internet as this distributed network but then over time then it goes back to one to a centralized network once these 
tremendous players get in. You know what I mean? Once Google arises, and that is following the eros, right? The centralizing, right? Centralization. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, it's is that a way to that... think about death drive being deterritorializing and eros being territorializing, reterritorializing, or territorializing? I don't know. That's Purely good, speculative here. It's 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 hard to say. I mean, when 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 Deleuze and Guattari talk about evolution and deterritorialization, they're they, they're thinking less about um, like the identity of the organism itself and more about some of the parts in relation to one another, right? Like they talk about the the lips as you know the lips and the and the breast and whatever they're deterritorialized mucous membranes and stuff mm-hmm. like that, but yeah. But I, I do think it's, I mean, like, I'll leave that aside and, and just as an open question, but I think it's interesting you brought up the, how the decentralization of the internet becomes progressively, very quickly, actually, from the 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it centers on these platforms and companies. And one of the things- Yeah, because something crazy is, I don't know if you're even familiar with this, but like Amazon Web Services is mm-hmm. the, the biggest hosting company in the world. So it's almost defeating, it. it it's so centralized that it's defeating the original purpose of the distributed network of the internet. Gotcha. Yeah. It's yeah. its own. Neg- it's creates its own negation. Yep. Well, when, when, Floyd which is, talk- I feel like that's kind of like a death drive. It's, it's hard to say straight out if that phenomenon is one or the other, right? Cause it's, yeah. cause, cause it's always about this rhythm, but I do think that it's important to, the little part where Freud brings up trauma in section four really quickly, he's he says like when there's a trauma, it's like all the psychic apparatus floods that area with energy. Mm-hmm. There's this cathexis, uh, which is what Strachey calls it, but it's really better to just call it an investment. It's like a it's like a hyper investment, right? But he says correlative to that in the surrounding areas, you have an you have an anti cathexis or a kind of anti-investment a disinvestment really and so like that that's kind of interesting about you talking about the either the amazon platforming services or these big you know these these big companies like google or whatever more and more being the the big dominant places on the web that investment into these big entities as you said goes counter to the intention at least the original intention which doesn't really matter anymore, but it's the origins of the decentralized nature of, of the of the networks. And so there's this kind of anti-cathexis of these of the fringes, if you will, surrounding those those modes of investment. And um, it is interesting in that sense because and to get back to this rhythm, to get back to kind of what I was saying earlier about like Freud's concern always with the binding of energies, the binding of libido. He'll continue this thought with civilization is discontents when he's like, how is it that humans got <laughs> like with all of our violent, destructive energies? How is it that humans formed to create higher forms of society yeah, and civilization? Right. And it's, and of course, his answer is sublimation. This is how art is possible. This is made possible by sort of our religious investment. Of course, Freud, if we take him at his word, he's he's pretty atheist in in his way of approaching things. But it does seem interesting that the death drive is, it's not always about destruction, right? Because it does seem to be involved in this rhythm of, if we think about the drives and the model of the drives and pleasure or whatever, the like pressure builds up there. Are, the drive is this building up of pressure. That's its main motive force, right? It is just increasing of, of tension. And then like 
pleasure would be, or at least the satisfaction of the the drive. It's the release of the tensions, right? So you have a buildup and then you have, right, exactly. The denouement. You go go back to what he calls a quiescent state, right? Or at least a minimum. Right. Uh, Minimum of excitation. Right. Or perturbation. I like like the word perturbation a lot. Well, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So you have a buildup of perturbation and then then you have like a kind of, uh, an evacuation. Go back to Cathexis in terms of investment. Does that mm-hmm. have a purchase or like any relationship here in this discussion? At least casually, it feels like maybe there's a tie between Cathexis and investment and going back to that quiescence. Yeah, because uh, he'll he even uses the word quiescent Cathexis, yeah. which is a kind of it's almost <laughs> a contradiction in terms, but in a certain sense, it's. It's about binding those those energies and rendering them untraumatic or non-traumatic or, or non-harmful to the psychic apparatus, if you will, right? Because it, to a certain point, as we understand pressure, if pressure can indefinitely build up in a system, it's going to lead to catastrophic results. Just from like a basic understanding of thermodynamics and a basic understanding of, of science, Freud agrees with this like wholeheartedly. And so it's always about the goal of, uh, well, the goal of psychoanalysis, but we could say, you know, if we just look at drives, drives are always for Freud looking for a way to satisfy themselves. If we use that term very loosely, because it is in German, the word is befriedigung. It's literally trying to free itself from its, we could say its container, whether it be the psychic apparatus or, or whatever, but it's trying to find an object, doesn't matter which object, through which it can propel its energies and have an outlet. That's right. It's it's almost like uh, a good metaphor would be a nuclear power plant. And I'm thinking in the context of like hmm. Chernobyl, right? Right. There are these mitigating factors like the rods. You pull out the rods to kind mm-hmm. of keep the over the reactor from overheating. And the water, the the abundance yeah, exactly. of water. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're right. You you have all these different uh, milieus and membranes. Right to to kind of um, to keep the core from overheating and exploding right. and because you are because you are generating all of this a massive massive amounts of energy and um, and you're you're kind of you're fucking with like the primordial capacities of of of, of atoms right and, yeah. and energy and these and the certain un, unbind yeah. oh that's interesting too is like this unbind the unbinding of the of the atom is what produces tremendous uh, unparalleled mm-hmm. source of energy is the, right. un, the unbound unbinding. So redu- yeah, removing the, right. removing all limits. Yes, you're right. I mean, cause, cause you have in, in nuclear reactors, you, you've got, you got fission where you're splitting atoms. So you literally are like unbinding them, but then you also have even more fusion powerful, yeah. right. You have fusion reactions and we know that that's how stars work. That's almost um, an interesting dyadic kind of, or dialectic that kind of maybe metaphorically, I don't know. I'm seeing that contrast between Eros and death drive or well, life yeah, drive or whatever. And in stars too, right? I mean, it's interesting that, that the immense amount of energy, heat, light that takes place by first, you know, first it's, 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 it's hydrogen, right? And then it's helium and, and it goes and goes to a point where we get to iron. And that's the, that's the atom that, that at which stars don't have enough energy to, uh, to, to turn well, them really into lead, I think, right? I believe it's iron. I believe that's that's where it gets. It can't 
it doesn't have enough energy to continue the the process and then it starts starts to die and, and it can either you know there's all kinds of fates of stars it can be yeah. supernova but it can also be black holes and whatever but even well, typically that destruct- super, super supernova results in a black hole but that's not the only way that stars life cycles no that's not the only way sometimes the they just white dwarf um yep. white dwarf brown dwarf, well no brown dwarf maybe something different yeah you got the you got the the giants you've got and sometimes they just die in a very well it's a whole life cycle too it's like right our sun our sun will eventually become a red giant yep it'll as, swell okay and it swell. yes right it, and it has to do with like that you can even see this in the way of like this membrane or this movement of particles because right it's like you said in terms of iron iron is a heavier element right so yeah right that's what remains as the star begins to off gas like eventually i think beyond the red giant phase like (laughs) when density is starting to decrease eventually like there's a certain type of nebula that is basically leaves the white dwarf will be surrounded by all the heavier gases or the Mm -hmm. lighter the Mm -hmm. lighter gases basically float off and that's what can create a certain type of nebula. And I forget the name off the top of my head. But it is interesting, right, that the life and death of stars, you can't really, it's, again, it's like a rhythm, like we were saying. You can't, you can't really just say that, well, you know, stars dying is just the death drive because what, what happens, we needed all, we needed right. so Those many. Right, those seed the universe with right, exactly. the elements they, needed to create mm-hmm. life for our own existence as well. Exactly. So it is, uh, so I do think it's, it's, it's correct to, to think about, these uh these drives working in tandem yeah and working uh, rhythmically and really being like janus faced side of of the same type of right. drive yes right? yes yes which how hegelian is that mm. or could we go that, lower? That, we, or would we say dyadic in terms of this dialectic it's, it's it's hard to say you know freud um or lacan wants to say that you know he has that essay in the acree about the subversion of the subject and it's and for him, there is a distinct Freudian and Hegelian dialectic. I back up. So there's a distinct dialectic that they share, or that are perhaps in opposition or separate. I don't know if Lacan wants to say they're absolutely opposite, but okay. I do think that he wants to say that they're distinct. Okay. And that it's important for him, at least, because of how how much he he draws from these thinkers. I mean, he draws a lot from just, just Hegel and yeah. Freud. You got, you got a, yeah, you got a big bunch of Lacan. Of, yeah, exactly. And, um, but I do think that it's important. Freud makes a, I think a, a discovery that is super important in, in the history of thought when he talks about the unconscious as having a very unique relationship to negation. Right. And that, and that how it, 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 it how negation contradictions, opposites, whatever, they can all inhere in the unconscious without any sort of conflict. And that, you know, and that this is why one could say the unconscious doesn't recognize death, which to a certain extent, if you read Hegel, at least in spirit, if not directly in the letter, because for Hegel, it's always about these phases and these moments, but it's precisely death that spirit abides with and through. And that's how you, that's how you get to the, the best shit, right? I mean, that's, but at the same time, that's not necessarily to. But I think Lacan would want to would want to say that Freud takes a radical stance on this, rather than making it a part of this moment in a, in a kind of dialectic. And I think that that's that's really important. And it's also, I mean, it, it, what's interesting about 
I feel like beyond the pleasure principle, there's like, there's like five or six different essays going on at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And one I of them, I think one of them that we can't forget is this. And I think this is why he he's led to speculate on biology and trauma and stuff is like, you know, the, the first world war has just taken place. Mm-hmm. Obviously the, the, the greatest spectacle of death. He had these immense technological advancements that allowed for, you know, the mass killings of, of, of enemy soldiers. You had all kinds of fucked up shit like mustard gas and these other, these other just forms of until then unthinkable, these unprecedented, you know, machines and methods of murder. And um, so Freud is really thinking about this, right? He's, he's, he's thinking that this is, and it's also a, a moment for psychoanalysis to say, we can, we can add something. We can, we can not only take something from this, but we can add to the, to the, to the discourse about these horrific things. And Freud makes this very interesting assertion about anxiety. And I mentioned in, in your translation that I don't like that they translate fear, angst, as fear, right? Angst should be translated as anxiety. It's a very specific, you know, concept for Lacan, for Freud. But Freud wants to say that anxiety is like this preparation. It's like this signal in the ego that danger is on the horizon. Yeah, yeah. It's the um, unpredictability of the the indeterminacy of the future mm-hmm. can cur- leads to anxiety. Although that's kind of a shitty. <laughs> well, it's it's that's like that's an armchair psychoanalytic. That, that that's true, but like Freud is Freud is specifically saying that it's it's precisely where anxiety is lacking. He wants to say that anxiety actually like builds us up this defense against the unknown, the unforeseeable, because anxiety doesn't know what it's anxious necessarily about. It can, we can fixate our anxieties like on a specific danger, but it, but it can be free floating as well. But before wants to say it, it kind of builds up this, this defense for us. And it's precisely where anxiety was lacking that this, that's where some of the, um, the trauma actually comes from. He, he makes this weird temporality argument. I don't know if you caught it. He keeps leading to this question. How is it that the traumatic, in traumatic neurosis, the dreams are not of a time in the future when the subject will be healthy or in the, in the past yeah. where the subject was happy. How is it that they keep dreaming about yeah. these, these horrific things? Right. And, because he, because he's yeah. kind of like contradicting his, he's saying, okay, in the context of my earlier work, which, interpretation of dreams Mm -hmm. dreams as wish fulfillment versus like why then what how does this function in terms of the trauma creating this repeated experience of the he's asking how do you square that with my idea of wish fulfillment he says either we we have to understand these traumatic dreams as doing something particular or we have to get rid of the wish fulfillment um hypothesis which he doesn't want to do yeah. <laughs> he doesn't want to get, he doesn't want to get rid of that. So he, he says, um, he says, we may assume that dreams in the tra- traumatic dreams are helping to carry out another task, which must be accomplished before the dominance of the pleasure principle can even begin. These dreams are endeavoring to master the stimulus retrospectively by developing the anxiety whose omission was the cause of the traumatic neurosis. And this is a fascinating argument to me. This is, this is interesting that, and it's a, it's a totally like weird kind of back to the future type (laughs) hypothesis, right? That because the anxiety was not there, 
because this preparation, this preparedness for the trauma was not there, then there, this is an attempt of mastery by going into the past, by reliving the conditions, so to speak, in the dreams, and then developing the necessary anxiety that wasn't there. It's very, it's very fascinating. And I could see it's, it's also very like Lacanian because Lacan would, I can, I can imagine him just like getting off on this idea so much. I don't know if he does talk about this hypothesis. Does this, uh, well, he, this quote that I have up, I don't know if you can see this, but I I I don't know if it has any relevance to this part of the discussion, but I feel like perhaps the prior trail we were on might have some relevance. He says, he has this interesting quote too, where he does seem to leave open the door for a more, for a a nuanced version of the wish fulfillment hypothesis, where he says, if there is a quote unquote, beyond the pleasure principle, (laughs) it is only consistent to grant that there was also a time before the purpose of dreams was the fulfillment of wishes. Now he says like, that doesn't negate their later function. Mm-hmm. But he, but but continuing what we were talking about, the little hypothesis about the traumatic dream is this reliving of the conditions under which the subject could have produced the anxiety necessary, and it goes back to his little Fort Daw story about his grandson. You know, when the mother leaves and he's throwing the objects and saying "gone" and all that. How it's about this. Um, reliving these seemingly unpleasurable experiences to master them to move from this passive uh state in which things happen to us beyond our control to reliving the conditions under which we can become active and of course he puts that into this dialectic of of um sort of masochism and sadism and stuff like that although you know with with Laplanche, he'll, he'll want to correct Freud on masochism. And Deleuze does an interesting reading of masochism that's totally different than, than Freud's. But part of Freud's, you know, basic dialectic in this notion of, of mastering stimuli is this movement from, from a passive to an active register. And I think that that's interesting. And that that's why he, to a certain extent, he can have his cake and eat it too and say like, well, maybe the earlier function of dreams was about mastering but to a certain extent, this still kind of accords with this pleasure principle, reality principle thing, right? Because it's precisely in the mastering, in the production of the anxiety in the past, that we are able to align those in such a way that we can get back into a register wherein pleasure can be, can be gained. There is something a little bit interesting in that sort of idea of, or like the quote that I had DM'd you about um, that I had just taken straight from Lacan seminar seven was jouissance is not the satisfaction of a need. It's the satisfaction of a drive. Right. Which I think is the mimetic potential of that quote. Right. It has a very high mimetic resonance for me. I just, I don't know. I love there's something brilliant about that sentence. (laughs) And as I, as I, as I told you that that's, that's Lacan being very faithful to, to Freud. Yeah. Um, you know, with now, no. And that, and maybe, and okay. So the through line there would be masochism, right? Because at least like from a conscious logical perspective, masochism doesn't really make a lot of sense, at least not on first glance until you dig deeper into 
Is it the, and here too, does the divided subject, which is probably more of a Lacanian thing, does that have more, not necessarily explanatory power, but I don't know, perhaps fleshing out Freud a little bit more? I mean, in a certain way, Freud too believes in divided subjects, right? Um, you know, not just in the the tripartite ego id, super ego, but in his way of understanding how we or the split split subjects, right, is the way that it's typically phrased, not divided. Right? Oh, are you talking about the subject of enunciation and the subject of statement, that kind of thing? Yeah, perhaps. I, you know, kind of like in the Lacanian approach. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's. I think Lacan remains faithful to Freud here too. And insofar as he understands Freud, um, Freud's trying to think through identity formation, right? And, and dynamically he wants to say that, you know, we go through these oral anal, you know, latency genital stages. And one of the most important of which is the stage of latency, right? Where we are developing, sort of a quote-unquote unitary ego, as he wants to say it, which is fraught with uh, all kinds of things to unpack because it's, it's not so unitary. But it, in and of itself, or at least for itself, you could say uh, in itself it's not unitary, but, but for itself it's, it's, it's like pr- proposedly because we become a person, right? We, 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 we take on responsibilities, uh, these other things. But we also gain the, the sort of, we, we gain a kind of mental power, a, a kind of unconscious formation or our unconscious forms and our ego forms alongside each other, you know, in tandem in such a way that we can begin to decode the, the sexual messages that have always already been implanted in us by, by adulthood. We, we become primed to, uh, you know, to, to, to be able to deal with all of that. Um, and that's, that's that's what Freud kind of hypothesizes that in humans, at least puberty is, is a function for, right? It's not just the, the influx of hormones on a biological level, right? There's a psychological structuring going on too. But for Freud, right, he's, he's always trying to understand ego, superego, id, the formation of identity based on identifications, right? Based on these, right? He'll want to, in a very strong theoretical way. He'll want to interpret, say, like male homosexuals as identifying more with the mother, right? Having kind of like weak identifications with the father, whether the father be absent or not, right? You know, because, you know, Lacan's always going to make it about the name of the father and, right. that, you, you know, you know how that goes. But, but yeah, but for Freud, right? He, and, 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 and there's a kernel of which some of that makes sense, right? That, that the male homosexuals would identify or have identification, strong identifications with the mother would be modeling behaviors based on, it's not one-to-one imitation, but there's, there's a, there's an element of mimesis going on, right? Where the, the patterns of speech, the, the values, the activities, the, even the, the hobbies and desires, right? Of the mother, they take on a certain matrix for the, you know, the budding male homosexual, yada, yada. That's interesting. I think in my own like life, my, I was raised primarily with my father, mm-hmm. <laughs> which yeah. and I think like I'm pretty hetero directed in terms of my 
sexual desires, gotcha. et cetera. Yeah. Right. Gotcha. Well, well now if you're going to continue the self-analysis, you want to tell us about <laughs> your, uh, your your proclivities for, my, for older ladies my edible <laughs> well that's not i mean but again that's not that's not directly edible right i mean yeah. like it's it, now analogously you could say well of course the mother's going to be older so you know but but freud doesn't really mean you know yeah it's not when he so says edible. Oedipus complex he's he's not saying like we all want older women yeah. um but symbolically perhaps yeah, right yeah, like I mean, that's where the yeah, signifier this right, is where yeah. lacan's um, I guess intervention and tying together the the like semiology or the mm-hmm. the structuralist semiology to the Freud machine is is kind of what, interesting. What was it you said yesterday that the signification or the signifier comes first? Right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah, that's what Lacan says, and I was mm-hmm. thinking, ah, fuck, I'd have to go back through. Oh, we, we don't we don't need to get into signifier discourse. That's a whole fucking like yeah. bag of worms. But uh, there was something really interesting. Worms. It's it's pretty interesting though, because I think that would be almost contra Freud, because Freud is and especially in BPP seems to taking a more like biological foundation for more grounded within the real, perhaps mm. Um, mm. than Lacan is opening up base in terms of how. A sort of deterministic element of the symbolic. I think that one thing that Freud is only starting to hit upon here in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, like in the little footnote about his grandson after, I don't know if you read the footnote, but uh, it was basically an acknowledgement that his his daughter, Sophie, mm-hmm. passed away. He doesn't say that it's his daughter, but we, we find that out through biographical sources later. But yeah, so his grandson, he mentions... Uh, his grandson sort of squatting down and making himself disappear from the mirror. I don't know if you saw that footnote. Do no, you, I didn't. You know talking- I didn't. I didn't catch that. But he's only scratching the surface on um, what Lacan will be somewhat most famous for. I say most famous for, but it's 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 usually the starter text for getting into Lacan, right? The, his essay on the on the mirror stage, which later he'll say. He should have said mirror phase, but you know, whatever. I mean, it's 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 a different metaphor. Um, Which he, it, I heard he actually stole the mirror phase from someone, <laughs> a different thinker. I, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, because but, I mean, but, I wouldn't either. No, I mean, that's whole, look. I don't know. But it's it's not really. I mean, all thinking is stealing, right? Yeah, I mean, we can get into true, that right. stuff. Yeah, we're, that's we're, a, we're always doing these little thefts, and I mean, the whole like, idea of ownership of ideas is kind right. of like a capitalist enforced structure it's not really it's my it's property not, it's not real yeah exactly you see some of that with tweets right okay so the footnote says when this child was and he's talking about the fort da right his grandson mm-hmm. when this child was five and three quarters his mother died he's talking about his granddaughter which or his daughter which is kind of sad uh now that she was really gone and the word gone is in parentheses in quotes right because because the baby's ooh is supposed to be fort it's supposed to be gone now that she was really gone, quote unquote, the little boy showed no signs of grief. It is true that in the interval, a second child had been born and had, well, that's not the right footnote. But he's talking about jealousy. And I think he's kind of wrong on why the child is jealous of the second child. In my opinion, it's not, oh no, the second child will now have the same love object, the object of desire, the mother. I think it's more of a jealousy, less of that than of attention. 
which is actually the the thing desired, um, not the mother as a as a fucking sex object or as a potential sex object because the child wants to be grown up, as he says. It's that the child in growing up won't be doted on as much, right? There's a second child, so that that child gets all the the love and, and adoration, at least in in the in the fears. That's just my thing. But okay, so the sorry. The footnote is element of it, yeah. The footnote is. Um, a further observation subsequently confirmed this interpretation fully. He's talking about the fourth dawn and how, how the child got more pleasure from throwing the objects and making them gone than from making them reappear. There was, and he says it's, 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 it's counterintuitive. Anyway, one day the child's mother had been away for several hours and on her return was met with the words baby ooh, which was at first incomprehensible. It soon turned out, however, that during this long period of solitude, the child had found a method of making himself disappear. He had discovered his reflection in a full-length mirror, which had not quite reached to the ground, so that by crouching down, he could make his mirror image, quote-unquote, gone, right, for it. I think that that's like scratching the surface. And it's not the same phenomenon that Lacan talks about, right? And Because, you know, it's a different dialectic, but... Freud is scratching the surface of what will become extremely important for many of Lacan's analyses and, and discoveries, if we want to call them that, which is the specular, which is that that realm of the specular, right? The um, so much of the object PTA and stuff like that has to do with this this role of the specular, right? Of the role of the of the mirrored image and all this stuff. There's an interesting maybe distinction for the Lacanian death drive or like the way that he conceives it is for Lacan. It's like the death drive is more of like a stable orbit around an object. And at least in seminar seven, that's maybe dusting. Oh yeah. Right. And so there's the, like a cert, almost like an orbit of the object versus the latter. So the circular movement of the death drive versus the lateral movement of desire via that's you know continuously deferred on this infinitely horizontal plane because it's always elusive and so we go from object to object never re- never really attaining the fullness right the reun- being reunited with that's where i get a little bit confused because like what's the distinction between those within lacan as far as you know what i mean if you're always orbiting the object via death drive although that can be sort of more stabilizing, I think, in terms of maybe analysis than continuing to move on this sort of horizontally, this this endless deferment of enjoyment or desire or satisfaction, well, rather. It would seem to be both at the same time or rhythms of them, right? Because it would always be a kind of vertiginous spiraling, which sadly kind of gets us back into a, an interesting Hegelian metaphor, right, <laughs> of of how the dialectic is is a kind of vertiginous spiral. I always kind of think about it interestingly, like, you know, the object of is always always this little remainder, right? And and as you were saying, that's why it's kind of the point is precisely not catching it, right? Because because desire is the desire to desire, right? And that stuff, right? It's it's not about, you know, fulfilling this one desire. That that doesn't exhaust desire you know and and its sort of function and its and its drive what could say right which is to to go further and that's and again that's that's the tension between the life and death drives right is is this 
if drives are programmed, if you will, kind of like cells, cells are programmed to die, drives are programmed to extinguish the pressure <laughs> that is that is their motive force to, ex- to extinguish that pressure, or at least, you know, it's again, for Freud, it's always a question of, it, is it to eliminate all pressure, like, which would really only be death, true death, right? Biological death, or is it to keep it, keep it minimal and constant? And Freud will vacillate there, right? Between these two. And it's, and that, and that vacillation is important theoretically, I think. I like this bit from Lacan. If everything that is imminent or implicit in the chain of natural events may be considered a subject to the so-called death drive, it is only because there is a signifying chain. Freud's thought in this matter requires that what is involved be articulated as a destruction drive, given that it challenges everything that exists, but it is also a will to create from zero, a will to begin again. I think that's interesting. I mean, that's interesting about to bring up to Kuhn and the cybernetic hypothesis again, really quickly, they, their point being that the development of cybernetics, specifically its explosion after the two destructive wars, one of its kind of fundamental problems that it attempts to solve is the recreation of order out of a sort of maximal disorder, if you will. Right. And this kind of goes back to what you were saying about the, the origins of, of the network structure of, of the internet, right? Of the web is, you know, it, 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 one of those things is like, you know, communication still can flow given 95% of the, of the nodes wiped out. Being down, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so cybernetics is this, and this is why it is about a mastery of information about, um, you know, a mastery of the flows of information and about, and information itself has a kind of life and death drive to it, right? Because on, on one side, information is... Information wants to proliferate. That's, well, that's... It's, that's a tenden, the tendency is for information to proliferate. And there is, there is a kind of equation of information and energy, information and light. We see this in the equations on black holes from uh, Hawking. It's interesting that information has two sides, right? It's on the one hand if we take a string of symbols, right, there's more information. Well, if we take the alphabet, there's more, there's the least information is an E because it's the most recurrent. It's most predictable if we had to guess. The most is like a Q or an X or a Z, right? So, so information then is based on its rarity. Or it's uh, uh, intensity or it's concentration of energy. Well, that's where, that's where it, it would get more meaning, right? It would get more signifying it would be a bigger signifier, if you will, because of its unpredictability. Because it, it, but um, on the other is hand, is there a relation to lack there in terms of that argument or that? I'm not sure. Uh, but that's, that's the strictly like statistical way of right. looking. Well, I was just thinking that's, that's in terms of like mathematical way. the usage, like the commonality of the letter, the proliferation of it is the abundance of it decreases its intensity. Hmm. Right. Or at least in, in terms of, yeah, qua information. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It is, it is interesting. And, and yet on the, the other hand, there is a notion of a kind of, you know, a kind of stability of information and that would be the flip side to it. But what Simon Dome tries to say is where Shannon Weaver 
you know, the mathematical side, they focus on quantity information as quantity and, and Wiener with his, you know, with he's kind of the scientist most related to, you know, cybernetics with, with Wiener it's quality because he's thinking about human and animal systems and feedback and stuff like that. For Simon Don, this is to sort of sort of miss the forest for the trees kind of thing on both sides, because what's most important for information systems is the intensity of information. And how so? So he'll give an example of smells, right? We think about smells in relation mm. to memory. They, they, are, they, they are some of the most intense evokers of memories, but also they, smells can be very, very intense, whereas their quantity and their quality is, at least for, for human subjects, very difficult to describe, but their intensity insists, if you will, above yeah. all, over their, over their so-called quantity and quality, because it's, it's kind of hard to talk about a quantity of a smell. Yeah. The quality of it, we can get yeah, a little you bit closer really, to. Yeah, intensity is the best way to understand odor, but, yeah. But, but for, and, and so he, he, he'll make some similar arguments about against, and this is, this is really this ongoing argument against gestaltists and this figure ground privileging and, the, and them wanting to focus on form because they'll want to say that animals, right, and their distinction between predator, prey, love choices, you know, uh, stuff like that. It's hard to talk about any, to, to, to use form in their way of discussing it with any meaningful way, right? Because when a chicken sees the shadow of a hawk, it's hard to talk about that in, in the gestaltist way of forms uh, in terms of, you know, squares or triangles or any of this other shit, right? It's, it's a corporeal diagram that is terrifying for them, less so than any, any particular. And also it's, they did experiments, right? Where they had, they basically made this big like hawk canopy and they would raise it above the, the chickens if the tail end of, of the hawk is facing forward, it doesn't provoke any anxiety. It's when the head is facing forward that that signifies for the chicken that they are potentially being witnessed by a, de by a deadly predator. And so they freak out. And they go Witness crazy. me. <laughs> Do you remember yeah. that from, uh, what is it? The newest Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, yes. Gotcha. Yeah. I was also thinking of uh, Red Dragon. Oh yeah, do you yeah. See? Eats, yeah. Do you see? Do you see? Yeah, that's always a movie I can go back to. Speaking of, there's something interesting. Just for a second, that Freud says about he mentions that the aim of all life is is death, right? And or the and, return to a more the return yes. to a a more primitive to the to, yeah to the that, inanimate, and which is really quite interesting in the context of the development of life from inorganic to organic mm -hmm. yeah and, and and he and he says that living beings die for internal reasons which we are actually finding that out to be vindicated more and more like with notions of program cell death and things like this right uh and simon don himself has a very interesting theory uh, about individuation and, and sort of why living beings have to die this was also interesting too in the context of the body in the human body and the individual cells, so many cells do die off from mm -hmm, the right. whole, but 
I thought that then, was like an interesting thing to point out. Yeah, and then in that context, women start to get get to a point where they stop making eggs. Men, there isn't as severe, but they they do begin to produce less and less sperm. Right, as testosterone, they age. testosterone, testosterone levels right. drop. Yep, that's right. But one of the interesting things that I like, what I liked about this this fact that Freud states, even if he's speculating here about living beings dying for internal reasons, is they. He talks about self-preservation, self-assertion, and mastery, which he's been talking about mastery, mastering, you know, these traumatic situations, building that that retrospective anxiety we talked about. And he says, um, they are component drives whose function is to assure that the organism shall follow its own path to death and to ward off any possible ways of returning to inorganic existence other than those which are imminent in the organism itself. And I like that. I like that. What, what's what's important to me about that, and what gets forgotten about this dialectic of life and death with Freud, is this notion of an internal reasoning, an imminent sort of an imminent death, towards which, if there is a drive of death towards death, a being towards death, right? There's like an authentic, imminent death for for each organism. I think that that's important to remember. It's not just about any old death. Right. It's about like my death. There's a specificity to it then. Yeah, there's a yes, exactly. And he says that the <laughs> the organism Does that go wishes, back to con context is for kings. Well, I mean, maybe it's, <laughs> it, he says the organism wishes to die only in its own fashion. Right. Which I, I just love that. I, yeah. I love that. I, I think that that's yeah, very that's really important good. because if, if we just talk about the life death drives abstractly and it's about this kind of universal or general <laughs> you know, for, for lackeys, right? This, this like general <laughs> yes, movement yes. towards death rather than a very specific, nuanced, uh, imminent. I think that they're. Which would almost be like a Sternerian, might be taking him from behind or buggery in terms of Sterner. But I mean, that would be the essential dialectic for Sterner would be this universalist exteriority versus the internal specificity of the individual's death. You know, he would very much argue that. that that same thing that context context is for kings versus the universalist subject. Yeah. I, and I, as it applies to death or the experience of death or that process. I guess the important thing is it's almost a, a you mean, you're saying Sternarian and I like that take, I can't speak about it, but it, but it does speak about it just because I don't have the knowledge. Uh, but, but it, it here, it does sound like a kind of transcendental critique. There's a transcendental understanding of the death drive for the, in terms of organisms, because it's about an, finding imminent reasons, right? Yeah. Rather than merely saying there's some sort of, whether it be fate from outside. Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Imposed from outside. Correct. Right, that there is, that in its progressing and, and, and as he says, like, there's a, this is why it's a conservative tendency, but it's an imminent conservative tendency. It's not just, it's not just some, what's imposed from outside is, the pressures of the milieu to adapt to. It's that negotiation of individuation and the ad adaptation to those pressures that produce the imminent reasons for the imminent drive of death, yeah. if that makes sense. So there is a, there, it's not that the outside or the uh, that externality or whatever, it's really more about this kind of 
Yeah, so it's less and of it's a, not just, it's not just it's, any old death, right? It's I less of contradict. Yeah, it's less of a contradiction focused basis, right? Or that's not the essential point. Mm-hmm. Is the contradiction exactly between the two? Yeah, right. I, I, I do think that he he wants it to be understood as a duplicity, in the sense of of them obviously working in tandem, like a co-constitutive uh, process. Uh huh. What about in terms of the, the zero, the great zero, etc., and its relation to, to Death Drive with Leotard contra Freud? Well, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, Leotard wants to say, you know, the if we take him at this notion of this notion of the the disjunctive bar, this notion of the of its furious rotation. We can even say like in its unbound libidinal state, the zero is a, we can only even see the zero or the disjunctive bar and the space of representation as it's slowing down. And it is an effect of the slowing down. So the zero itself is a kind of an, an effect of, you know, of the slowing down. And one could even say that, that it's only sort of with the, you know, appearances of forms of life that one can even talk about a death drive. At yeah. least, at least on Freud's, if we stick to Freud's biological framework here. Right. Earlier, we were talking about stars and stuff yeah. like that, and kind of being a little bit more cosmological and, uh-huh. and and cosmic about it. But yeah, I mean, it's. Although, could, I mean, is there really a distinction, especially I think in the Spinozist or monistic sort of. Right, you start with like kind like this or stuff the, like that. Just the the, I mean, this distinction between inorganic and organic. Right, it's all contained within the whole of the monad. Yeah, I mean, uh, with different modes of expression of the one substance. I mean, this has been this has been one of the for biological philosophy at least this increasing problem problematization of of treating the organic and the inorganic as as like absolute binaries is 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 definitely suspect. But yeah, I mean, like. You know, something we didn't touch on either back to that sort of cosmological discussion was, you know, we didn't talk about panspermia. And I think specifically in the sense of the way that certain species of mushrooms or what have you, fungi rather, largely speaking, their spores can survive through the vacuum of space. And that's the whole germ to affirmatively be like taking that pun on, like pun intended. The idea of panspermia is... That's how life was seeded on the earth was by perhaps some type of some type of spore or like right that traveled on a um, like a comet or something right. It is fascinating and it's a question. It's it's but it always becomes this interesting question of like you know whether we entertain a kind of creation ex nihilo that it, that it just warped in from a white hole or something right <laughs> like 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 was spat out from some other space time. Uh, in the future or in some, you know, whatever multiverse, but the the development of life comes from the future. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of like, yeah, it's, it's whether we take that hyperstitionist phase or we sort of say that I don't, I don't think anything's wrong with it. It's just the conditions of possibility for life on some other accreted planet would have had to have been necessary. Plus the development of, you know, of, um, you know, the mycelia of, you know, mushrooms and, and their spores, and then the travel. I mean, the, so again, like, we either have to kind of think in a science fiction way about 
the temporality of it. And it, and it is possible. It is possible that, that, that planets reached viability for conviviality and life before earth that's definitely possible and not even theoretically uh, yeah. implausible. It's, you know, and then, it, and then it becomes this question of, we can imagine. An infinite universe or inf- either infinite right. universe or infinite amount of universes, both could produce this potentiality via the folding or bending of the curvature of space time wormholes, etc., whether it be between points within the same universe or between points within alternate separate universes. I was just thinking about like, you know, you could have a you could have a kind of a swamp, a shitty little swamp planet with with some some mushrooms and then some catastrophe happens, right? Like whether it be Death Star or just some, you know, some other collision it, it, with it, a comet. Yeah, yeah, whatever. It, it leaves it, the particles it gets floating destroyed. in space. It gets yeah. accreted somehow, right? You and can... then, however many billions of years it could have, how fast it was going in a vacuum is also a question. But it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, and and to think that too would be, you know, if we take that panspermia argument. Seriously, we would have to think that given how long it took for the earth to accrete and slow down enough to, to start to allow for, for its own territorialization, that it had to have been constantly bombarded and, and potentially still, obviously, right. uh, for that to be viable. And again, I'm not, you know, we're, <laughs> we're, just, we're just speculating here, but yeah. it would have to have been a, been a constant barrage of, of spores. It's another way to view the to this metaphor of the intensity of the libidinal band or the intensity of at a certain point, right? The earth is molten, right? Like it has to, that, right. it has to, the, the libidinal band has to slow down enough for mm-hmm. complex uh, or organisms to begin to develop, right? Like there has to be some type of a modulating force on, I don't yeah, know what, yeah, even what right. that other force would be or how to articulate that, but there has to yeah. be a cooling down process. Of the perturbed yeah. particles. I was thinking about this the other day with watching this documentary about flat Earth. <laughs> and I always wondered, like, do they imagine there's no core and mantle of the of the Earth? Right? Wouldn't 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 flatness preclude there being a molten iron core? Yeah, which um, is the whole magnetosphere is sort of based upon which right yeah that's a good point would be at least empirically evidence of a round or spherical earth right because of polar you know the magnetic north pole etc yeah and i always i guess that doesn't necessarily preclude you know thinking about that in the metaphor of like the libidinal body or uh what is the great ephemeral skin like if you two-dimensionalize it right those those poles could be topological and and as well right like a north pole and a south pole like concentrations of of magnetism could sort of correspond to these two forces or you know whatever kind of dyadic composition you want to <laughs> yeah i'm in. sure i'm sure they could just say like well it's it's flat on top but it's got like a it's got a round bottom or something right <laughs> like you, you you can imagine it, it you know um, oh yeah i mean you can take all kinds of logical leaps yeah, and uh, it is interesting 
that as Deleuze and Guattari talk about, right, with, with the development of capitalism and, and its quote-unquote acceleration you, and you're threatening older territorialities, you do have a, a sort of, as a consequence, you turn the dial up on paranoic assemblages, so to speak. So you have a, you have a heightening of paranoia too, and this leads to proliferation of conspiracy theories and, um, yeah. and the consequences for that. And we've, We've seen, we've lived through that a little bit in America, more specifically. <laughs> I mean, the, with, inten- the intensity of it has definitely, I think, taken a, an accelerated route, as I think digital technology has certainly proliferated that, mm-hmm. like in the sense of difference and complexity, right? A force against that. It's against this consolidating force of capital. But that's its own weird contradiction, is that dialectic between this death drive and the, the life drive but i'm yeah. getting super metaphorical so pl- no no you're please. good you're good no you're uh, good keep, I mean, keep me from keep my libidinal band from overheating if i'm getting yeah. too fantastical no, you're, here you're, you're totally you're totally good I, I i think that what's what's cool about what we did is we kind of did like a like a surface we hit some of the big points of BPP and, and connected them to a whole host of interesting things. Obviously, we didn't exhaust the the essay, so I think we could we could come back to, especially maybe like in this the second half of the essay, we could come back to. But I, I do think that this was this was good, and hopefully, it, it kind of spurred you and helped you think about all the times that Leotard brings up beyond the pleasure principle, why it's so important for him and. Um, in liberal economy. Yeah. I mean, we could, we could try to think about that for and, next time. And I think, I think would be worth delving into as well as just from the standpoint of how influential is beyond the pleasure principle in terms of all the thinkers that were, you know what I mean? Deleuze and Guattari, Baudrillard, Leotard as well. Those, you know, how influential, how central is this text to understanding or contextualizing the later thought of those thinkers and maybe drawing through lines yeah, and I think we did to some degree here, but maybe a more focused dive into how important or the influence of BPP on on later thought. Because yeah. obviously, like, right, Freud is a tremendous influence on all of those thinkers. I think Leotard perhaps takes him most directly, but also to some degree Baudrillard as well. Baudrillard probably mixed, I think, is engaging with Lacan a bit more directly. Although in reading, God, I can't remember which seminar, if it's seminar seven or 16, but I was wondering if fucking Leotard was in attendance for the, one of those lectures because of the, just the sort of the subject matter w- had a lot of um, overlap. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. I mean, you would almost have to think he was, pre- you know what I mean? Everybody was, right? Especially seminar 16 is, I think, 69, which would almost be the height or yeah. close to Leotard's sort of peak within the French cultural tradition. I think it would be more, from what we know about Leotard's biography, it'd be more probable that he was there in 69 than in the late 50s and 60s, because early 60s, because we know that he was... Yeah, he was teaching in Algeria in like 55. But I wouldn't be surprised if he was was attending some of that stuff. Although, uh, you know, Leotard talks about Lacan a lot less than, than one might think. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, and tends to... He's tends, more Freud geared, I think. Yeah. And when he talks about Lacan, he tends to... Well, in like Discourse Figure, when he talks about Lacan, it's, it is in context of his 
uh, use of structuralism, right? And his thinking through of signification and the signifier and stuff like that. But even there, it's not necessarily to critique him per se. And like when he shows up in, um, in Liminal Economy, it's always something, it's never to critique his, his thinking in itself. He'll do that with Freud and with Marx and these other guys, but with Lacan, it's, it, it's kind of like, oh yeah, and Lacan says something about uh, what love is, love is uh, giving someone you know, <laughs> what you don't have, who doesn't want it. And he's like, what Leotard says, I'll have to look again, but he says something about it's like, it's more like lightning, you know, striking or some shit like that. I tweeted it out fucking a while ago. I, I know that it, you were, you're totally right about, about how influential this text is. I feel like it was a huge hole in my, in my reading. So I'm glad we got a chance to dive into this before going, you know, continuing libidinal economy and future forays into symbolic exchange and death and uh, anti-Oedipus. Yeah. He says, um, love is not giving what one does not have. It is having to cry near areas struck by lightning. <laughs> like, what, the, what the fuck, Leotard? Like, yeah, I have no I, clue what the fuck that means. I, I, I'm not sure. I don't know. It, it also seems like Leotard doesn't use the word cry. In, in the book, he doesn't, it's not, I don't think, I, I wonder, I, I, I would assume it's not cry as in tears. I, I, oh, I like cry out as in yell. Yeah, I, I think like so. I, I think so. Because he, he's always talking about the, the cries of passion, right? When he's talking about like prostitution and these other stuff, he, he, he does talk about cries, but, but, but it's always in this sense of... Um, like an intense vocalization. Yeah, like an ejaculation. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think maybe we should leave it at that. Yeah.